0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, November 18th. Today, back in the day, November 18th, 1938, John L. Lewis was elected as the first president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, as in AFL-CIO. Not to be confused with civil rights pioneer John Lewis, John L. Lewis was involved in a different type of good trouble. A hugely influential labor leader in the first half of the 20th century, a coal miner since he was a teenager, Lewis worked his way up to the presidency of the United Mine Workers of America in 1920. He led that organization for the next 40 years, a major financial supporter of FDR and the New Deal. This won the Mine Workers Association more members and more bargaining rights. He helped found the Congress for Industrial Organization with the intent of uniting workers in mass production industries. That introduced the union structure to major industries like steel, automobiles, rubber, and electrics. Though he's not a household name, John L. Lewis influenced the American economy at a time where unions were at the height of their power. Today, back in the day, November 18, 1972, Oregonian snowboarder Chris Klug was born. Klug was born in Bend in the shadow of Mount Bachelor. At 19, he was diagnosed with a rare disease and eventually had to get a liver transplant. He still helps raise awareness for helping people get liver transplants. And he still competed in snowboarding competitions across the world in the 1990s. He went on to win a bronze medal in 2002. Klug went on to win a bronze medal at the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. He's the reigning 2008 North American snowboarding champion. And he still lives in Sisters, Oregon today. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines. We'll have an interview with a local teacher, Tom, bringing their experience of teaching during COVID. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. As a new statewide freeze goes into effect today, Governor Kate Brown has pledged $55 million in new aid for businesses. The coming freeze has caused many business groups to amplify their calls for government assistance. Last weekend, the Independent Restaurant Alliance of Oregon sent an open letter to Governor Brown asking for, among other things, financial relief and the deferral of business taxes governor's office now appears to be meeting some of those calls announced did the governor that $55 million in aid is heading to businesses hurt by the pandemic. The funds will be distributed to counties based on population, and the counties will be empowered to distribute those funds as they see fit. Brown's office has said that priority will be given to businesses specifically hurt by the new freeze. That includes gyms, restaurants, and event spaces, as well as BIPOC communities, which have struggled disproportionately during the pandemic. The new aid might help shore up Oregon's recovering economy now that soaring coronavirus cases are threatening the recent economic gains. Last month, Oregon's unemployment rate fell to 6.9 percent from the 7.9 percent of just a month before. Where the $55 million is coming from is not entirely clear. Some of it may be coming from the Federal CARES Act. If so, those funds would need to be distributed before the end of next month, before the end of September, the end of the year. Brown's office projects the new funds should be sent to Oregon counties in the next few weeks.
1: Here's your daily dose of data. Yesterday, Oregon Health Authority reported another uptick in new and presumptive COVID-19 cases as Oregon heads into a new statewide freeze on many services and social gatherings. 935 new cases were reported, in total over 150 more than the previous day, which brings Oregon's total cases to 58,750. They also reported 13 new deaths related to the virus, the second highest during the pandemic, bringing Oregon's death toll to 778. Multnomah County continues to contribute an outsized portion of new cases. 208 of the new cases were reported in Multnomah, compared to the next highest Marion County with 151 new cases. Neighboring Washington and Clackamas counties reported 88 and 85 cases respectively. The rise in cases comes with an equally alarming rise in hospitalizations. The number of hospitalized COVID-19 patients has more than doubled since the last spike in mid-July. In Oregon Region 1, which includes the Portland metro area, non-ICU beds are currently at about 91 percent capacity, while ICU beds are close to 83 percent capacity. That spike means field hospitals, which were last seen in the spring, may be deployed again in Oregon. The statewide freeze going into effect today is expected to last for two weeks in most counties. However, Multnomah County will be under that freeze for a total of four weeks.
0: As another part of the statewide freeze, retailers will not be required to accept cans and bottles for the next few weeks. In normal times, the OLCC, that's the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, requires retailers to redeem empty cans and bottles. That's part of the bottle bill. That applies the 10-cent deposit to sales of canned and bottled beverages. That deposit, which is designed to encourage recycling, will still be applied to the register. But the rules requiring retailers to accept those containers are being suspended Official bottle drop locations will remain open. Folks who don't have a bottle drop near them are being encouraged to keep their empties for now. Once the statewide freeze is lifted, retailers will have five days to begin accepting empty containers again. To be clear, though, reduced access to bottle redemption is going to put some Oregonians in even more financial stress. Can and bottle redemption has actually increased over the course of the pandemic, as more people have come to rely on bringing in those bottles and cans.
1: Some possible contenders have emerged for Oregon's next U.S. attorney. The post is currently filled by Billy J. Williams, who was originally appointed by President Barack Obama in 2015. President Trump nominated Williams to maintain that position in 2017. Earlier this year, Williams came under fire when he suggested that racial justice protests were turning violent due to a national coordinated effort. He cited intelligence he couldn't share as part of that claim, And at the time, Mayor Ted Wheeler said he had not seen that intelligence himself. Williams was also responsible for keeping 50 Portland police officers federally deputized, a decision that led the city to sue the U.S. Department of Justice. As a result, many expected President-elect Joe Biden to seek a replacement for Williams. Some names are reportedly in the mix already, including Assistant U.S. Attorney Craig Gabriel, Civil Division Chief Renata Gowie, and former federal prosecutor Donna Maddox. While the process of selecting the next U.S. attorney has not officially begun, it will likely be led by Oregon's Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley.
0: As the Thanksgiving holiday and soaring coronavirus cases collide, Oregon universities are offering free tests to students. I know what you're thinking. Students don't want tests, whether they're free or you have to pay for them. But this is a different kind of test. It's a COVID test. Despite calls from experts, such as Anthony Fauci, to avoid traveling this November, Experts are still preparing for some people, maybe a bunch of people, including college students, to head home anyway. To mitigate those risks, OSU and U of O are offering free COVID-19 tests. Combined, more than 50,000 students attend those two schools. If they all go home, it's going to be like that biker bash super spreader event. OSU's free testing runs through Thursday. They expect about 30, nope. OSU's free testing runs through Thursday. They expect about 7,500 students to take advantage of it. Students at the U of O are being asked to reserve their spot for a free test. They're being offered at a first-come, first-served basis. Neither institution has offered an estimate on how many tests they have available. Of course, someone who tests negative can still be contagious without knowing it. As local and national experts have been saying, the best way to flatten the curve is to stay home next week. By the way, if you have to get home for the turkey, understand if turkey really were the best meat there is, more people might eat it on days other than Thanksgiving. Family's important. So is your health. Clear, I love Thanksgiving. What the hell am I going to do for Thanksgiving? What are you going to do for Thanksgiving? If you have interesting Thanksgiving plans, email them at at thelocalxray.fm.
1: Good news is the Portland Clean Energy Fund is issuing its first grants in its fight for climate justice. The Portland Clean Energy Fund, or PCEF, was approved by voters in 2018. It established a 1% surcharge on the sales of certain large retailers, which is expected to generate up to $60 million a year. Those funds would then promote green initiatives for low-income and BIPOC communities, which are often disproportionately affected by climate change. Now, after several delays and deadline extensions, the PCEF is offering its very first grants worth around $8.6 million. The recipients of those funds have yet to be shared, with an announcement expected in February. One member on the grant committee, Robin Wang, stressed the challenge of quote, getting it done quickly and getting it done right. Potential projects would include regenerative farms, solar panel installations, and job training for new clean energy careers. In all, the program is designed to bring the benefits of clean energy more often enjoyed by high income households to new communities. The PCEF is still accepting grant applications until November 23rd. And given the devastating impacts of the recession, Those new funds couldn't come at a better time. And And that's today's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Rundown. And now we have a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be a teacher during the pandemic. Special educator teacher Tom will be discussing with Jefferson Smith how students and teachers are coping during these unprecedented times. Here are Tom and Jefferson.
0: It's time to talk about what's happening in Portland public schools. There have been major questions about when and how the pandemic will impact education, when and how students will return, when and how students will learn. Perhaps no institution has been more upended by the pandemic than public education. Students, teachers, parents are all managing uncertainty, trying to make the most of distance learning, important public schools trying to adjust to some unprecedented times. And we are joined now by Teacher Tom. Now, Teacher Tom might have a different name. We're going to call Teacher Tom, Teacher Tom to discuss the state of Portland's public education, how students and teachers are coping, whether education has remained equitable during the pandemic. Uh, Teacher Tom has chosen to leave their last name private, is a special educator. Tom, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
2: Thanks so much for having me this morning.
0: How long you been teaching?
2: Wow, well, I got my master's degree in teaching license in 2011. So I've been uh, teaching professionally since then. But it's really all I've ever done, aside from clean houses and work construction. I was a youth professional teaching after-school programming and um, Schools Uniting Neighborhoods programming for, since uh, 2005. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a long time working and, with
0: students. And you're a Sun Schools teacher now, or you also teach, you, you teach in public schools now?
2: Yes, I'm a high school teacher. I'm a special ed high school teacher.
0: Special education. The how many students do you usually have in a classroom? How many students do you? How many classes do you normally have to teach? Give us a better understanding of your day to day.
2: So during quarantine, I have the lowest case load of any teacher that I work with, just because I, I specialize in working just with students on the autism spectrum, and students with uh, communication and behavior disorders in quotes. So I have a slightly lower caseload because of the higher demands, so I have 27. But most of my special education teachers have 35 students that they work with. And um, our schedule varies day to day, but our schedule is jam packed. If you wanna hear more about what my day hour by hour is like, I can certainly share that with you, Jeff.
0: What is what differentiates a really effective special education teacher for one that has a harder time? Any tips? I mean, many of us interact. I coach basketball. One of one of one of my players was on that was high function, had high functioning autism. Uh, Any any uh, guidance for what when you're feeling most effective, what makes you most effective? And when when people are being effective with the community that you teach, what makes them most effective?
2: Well, I think that in this time we are being hugely affected as a team by just keeping our students safe at this time. And what safe means is doing distance learning, even though it may not be working quote unquote well for all students and students may be struggling. Um, And at our best, special education teachers are fierce advocates. We are not gatekeepers um, in any way, shape or form for students' needs, students' access to help and support. We help open doors and we help bring other professionals, other general education teachers, your math teacher, your English teacher, we help them understand those students better. And we, at our best, we also help students understand themselves better, help them identify their strengths help them make goals and work towards those goals. Um, a special education teacher who can do all those things, who can team, and who can hold students at the very center of everything are the best, best, best teachers and the ones who will continue on in these professions for for longer than, than others might if they keep that why at the center of their heart
0: so take us through a day as a teacher in the quarantine
2: times what does your daily routine look like now sure um i certainly wake up uh from fever dreams at around 4 30 or 5 a.m um and then i hit the ground running i check my email which is about a dozen email streams that i need to track per day um, and then 20 more emails to respond to and maybe spawn new email streams and threads. Many, many texts to parents and students to send through Remind, um, sending tons of reminders, reminders to show up to class, reminders to work on an assignments. Um, so that all happens from 4.30 in the morning to around seven. Hopefully I can fit some breakfast and a bathroom break in there. <laughs> Um, maybe some caffeine. And then from seven to nine, I do lesson planning, collaborating with my two paraeducators who I work with and the speech pathologists who I am blessed to work with very closely, Uh, checking students' grades, modifying assignments and work, adjusting work for students so that it works better for their skill set. And then from nine to noon, I teach class. I have a little bit of a lunch break. And then from noon to three o'clock, I have open office hours where I'm working one-on-one or in small groups with students. I like to call myself a professional nag, so I'm doing a lot of (laughs) nagging slash helping students with uh, things they might be struggling with. Uh, Even something as simple as just getting started on an assignment um, or reading through the directions. Uh, It can take three to four hours sometimes to work with one to two students um, on certain things at a time. And then at three o'clock, I usually have many, many meetings, so meetings with parents, IEP meetings, many, many staff meetings. So my day usually goes from 4.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m.
0: What is working and what is not working with education in the COVID era?
2: I think the, the main thing that is currently working is that there are no case spikes in COVID and no increased deaths among students, uh, their families and communities and amongst the teacher teacher families and communities. Often those communities and families are intertwined because many of us live in the neighborhoods where we teach. So that's what's working really well right now. We're doing a really great job of protecting students, families and teachers in this current social distancing distance learning model. Um, and there are many things that could be improved. Um, and it's hard to point a finger about who to who to blame slash who to incite to improve those things. Um, uh, I think that the way that um, I think about it is that teachers are all trying to figure out how to do the most basic things that used to work really well. Uh, for them in helping students. So picture this, Jeff, picture this. Let's say you're a teacher and you give a direction and, and then I'm a student and I'm, I'm a student with special needs or I'm a student student who just struggles for one reason or another. You give that direction and then when you're in person class, oh, it's simple, you give the direction and then you swirl around the room, you swirl around and you, you crouch down by the desk or near the student who you know needs that assistance to get started or needs that clarification or needs you to read with them or help them get started with writing. And you would just swirl around the room and hit all those key students, making sure they get it. Well, guess what? During distance learning, there's literally no way to do that. You in no swirling.
0: were in a an class. Ant- we're in a non-swirling world.
2: No ability to swirl. And that is the most basic thing that teachers do to help get students, help give students questions. There's When you've got 27 students there all at once, there's no way to take a student aside and be like, hey, buddy, did you get that? Or, hey, friend, can I help you get started? And um, because of a, I will say, a lack of district leadership in creating strategies for teachers to build those things into their classroom, um, teachers are having to event, invent those opportunities on their on their own and some more quickly than others, even though all teachers are working very hard. And my other thing that, that I think is really important to mention is that the way that high school is set up there's a whole period in the afternoon for many high schools where students are expected to show up to what's called asynchronous time which means that it's not required that teachers have synchronous support time it's a class but student it's time for students to work essentially independently on work it's like a built-in study hall except that that requires that students show up (laughs) to those study halls (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> those daily halls, and that also requires that the teacher be available to show up to support that student. So normally in class, you know, non-distance learning, you'd have students who are struggling and teachers can provide them one-on-one or in small groups on the fly support in class, getting them going, helping clear, answer questions. But now students are expected to have the responsibility to show up of their own accord and then maybe teachers are able to show up to help them. So they have to kind of meet and that meeting doesn't always happen. Number one, because that's not developmentally appropriate for high school students to have that expectation and they may not have the support at home. Most of them don't to be able to do that. And then teachers, they are dealing with their own families. There's no childcare. Many of these teachers are scrambling trying to do their own thing. So they may not be able to meet during those asynchronous opportunities. So these opportunities that would be happening in school for students to receive support who desperately need it just aren't there, aren't built in in any, in any uniform way that the district has helped us figure out how to do and present and presented to teachers in a comprehensive
0: way. And what about, and what about just, we're talking to teacher Tom about the conditions in public education right now, Tom, what about just getting and holding students' attention, Uh, just making sure that if they're on some Zoom call, their camera is on, they're actually paying attention, they're not also just watching television. I'm just imagining what I would have done at that time. I'm not trying to cast any (laughs) excuses on kids. I'm just trying to put myself
2: in their shoes. How do you actually keep, get, and hold their attention? Absolutely. I think that most teachers are who, again, all of our curriculum that we've built for in some cases decades has been thrown out the window because it's not able to be done in a distance learning setting. So teachers are working so, so hard, Jeff, to create you know, create videos, create, uh, generate visuals, create as many visually and auditorily engaging pieces of material putting in games, cahoots, gamifying things to try to make sure that students are actively engaged and interested in the material, trying to make the material culturally relevant, topical um, and relevant to students lived experiences and lives in the best way that they can. Um, I see teachers just kind of busting their butts to be honest to create these things from scratch because of a lack of resources provided.
0: How are kids doing? How are students doing? And we only got another minute or two, but how are oh, students doing how are students coping?
2: Um, I would say that it's been really tough. Um, at the beginning, many students started strong. They were just excited to see another a new face, new faces. They were like, Oh my goodness, a whole group of new faces. And and now things are are really getting tougher and tougher. I I, I know that for myself, I, I'm speaking for myself here. Um, I know that I see some of my students dropping off the radar, you know, they started strong, they started seeing not so great grades, they started getting discouraged and some students are participating less and less and the mental health concerns are increasing and increasing. Uh, students are trapped with their families and sometimes that can be a really tricky situation. I would say 50% of my students are experiencing adverse home life situations that are getting in the way of them being able to fully show up mentally and physically to school.
0: And how does this manifest itself for you? Do you get, uh, do you ask questions about it and they tell you, do they, can you just see it on their faces?
2: Do you just see it in attendance rates? How does it manifest itself? All of the above Jeff, exactly. All three areas that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah. And not to be too much of a Pollyanna, but when you were talking about teachers creating uh, curriculum from scratch and trying to figure out a way to be a little jazzier, be able to rely not just on the swirl and not just on the you know stand-up lecture, but trying to provide more video content, more gamification, et cetera. Any silver linings here? Anything that might help us become, have a culture of even better education going forward as, as more material is built in ways that is able to compete for attention, heck, with smartphones and video games and stuff that's, you know, I'm gonna start sounding like an old man, but you know, it, it does feel like we're in a world where the battle for attention is important.
2: I think that I what I see are students doing their absolute best. And I work in in a in a school where there's students who have experienced significant challenges, and I see students trying to do their absolute best based on the circumstances. That's my silver lining, the effort that I see from students to try their best against all odds to bring themselves to the table, all distractions you mentioned involved, and that teachers are really out there working so hard. I mean, 14-hour days, I'm telling you, despite very staggering lack of what I consider to be leadership and concrete resources to build things, to engage and to team with one another and to share curriculum and to work with what we've been given, which is not much.
0: Well, I want to say thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for your service. Thanks for the teaching that you do. And thanks for spending time with us this morning.
2: Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you so much for holding these kinds of conversations and I hope more like these can happen so that uh, community members and students and teachers alike can be a part of them. Be well. Me too. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks to Tom for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. I'm so very grateful to be able to be doing this with you. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for giving whatever review you can. We hope it's five stars, and we hope you can share it with friends. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray.